This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. Jerome Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve, set out a hawkish tone on tackling inflation in America, speaking at an annual gathering of central bankers at Jackson Hole, Wyoming. He admitted that curbs could result in a sustained period of below-trend growth, but that America's central bank, quote, must keep at it until the job is done. In July, the Fed announced its second consecutive 0.75 percentage point rate rise. Moderna, an American pharmaceutical company, sued its rival, Pfizer, and its German collaborator, BioNTech, over alleged patient infringement while developing their COVID-19 vaccine, the first in the world. Moderna said that the companies infringed on patients filed between 2010 and 2016, covering innovative mRNA technology. It clarified that it was not seeking to block the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine from the market. The Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine was reconnected to the national grid, according to the country's Atomic Energy Agency, after it was temporarily disconnected in a fire triggered by artillery shelling. Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, said Europe narrowly avoided a radiation disaster. The UN's nuclear watchdog said its officials were very, very close to being able to visit Europe's largest nuclear plant to assess the situation. America and China reached a landmark deal in enabling American regulators to inspect audits of Chinese companies listed on its exchanges. The agreement, which comes after more than a decade of stalled talks, could prevent hundreds of US-listed Chinese stocks from being delisted for not making their books available for audit for three consecutive years. In August, five of China's state-owned companies said they would opt to delist. Ofgem, Britain's energy watchdog, increased the country's energy price cap by 80%, pushing up the typical household's energy bills to £3,549 a year. The new prices will kick in from October the 1st. Jonathan Brearley, the regulator's chief executive, said there was no choice but to increase the cap to reflect the soaring price of energy. The new prices will kick in from October the 1st. America's Department of Justice unsealed the affidavit that authorised the search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate earlier this month. The heavily redacted version, written by an FBI special agent, claimed there was probable cause to believe that Trump had not returned additional classified documents and that, quote, evidence of obstruction would be found at his home. Morocco recalled its ambassador to Tunisia for consultations after Tunisian President Kais Saied welcomed Brahim Ghali, the head of a local separatist movement, at Tunis airport. Morocco's foreign ministry denounced Tunisia's, quote, hostile and detrimental attitude and pulled out of TCAD, a regional summit for Africa's development. Last year, it temporarily withdrew its ambassadors to Spain and Germany over the same issue. And word of the week, Esquara, the Basque language, which against all odds, has seen an increase in speakers of 350,000 since the 1980s.
And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. Heat and drought in China. The end of summer cannot come soon enough for tens of millions of residents in the megacities of Chengdu and Chongqing. For weeks, Sichuan Province in southwest China has experienced record-breaking heat. Temperatures are supposed to cool at the end of August, but much of the damage is already done. The energy system has been strained by greater demand and weaker supply. A drought reduced hydroelectric output by about 50% year-on-year in the province. Industry has been hit hard. Provincial officials have been forced to tell thousands of manufacturers to cease production. That includes important multinationals such as Toyota, a Japanese carmaker, and Foxconn, the Taiwanese electronics group that supplies Apple. The load shedding ended on August 25th, but the power crunch, the second in as many years, has raised serious questions on China's ability to cope with the effects of climate change. The church hands out its red hats. On Saturday, the cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church gather in the Vatican to welcome 20 new quote princes of the church selected by Pope Francis. As the first pontiff from Latin America, he has tilted the College of Cardinals towards parts of the world long marginalized by the Church, particularly Asia. Timor-Leste, a country of just 1.3 million people, which is almost 98% Catholic, will get its first cardinal. So will Mongolia, where there are only around 1,300 faithful. The share of European cardinals has fallen from 52% to 40% on Francis's watch, but Africa, the engine of Catholicism's growth, remains badly underrepresented. Of the new cardinals, 16 are part of the smaller group which will pick Francis's successor. Now aged 85, he has signaled that he may one day retire. He presides over a church finely balanced between reformers and conservatives, but he will at least influence who follows him. 83 of the 132 cardinal electors are his choices. Farewell to the Mekong Review At a glance, the Mekong Review, an English-language magazine, can be compared to many Western literary journals, its simple white cover easily mistaken for the Times Literary Supplement. But in its content, including reviews, reportage, poetry, and fiction, all concerned with Southeast Asia, it is unique. Despite only publishing a few thousand copies of each issue, it has attracted a devoted following. But this week, after seven years, the journal's editors said they were putting down their pens. Minbui Jones, the Australian founder, has found it increasingly difficult to publish in a region dominated by authoritarian governments. In 2020, authorities in Hong Kong forbade the printing of an issue featuring a profile of Joshua Wong, a pro-democracy activist. The following issue, which covered protests in Thailand, was rejected by printers in Bangkok. Logistical difficulties caused by COVID-19 lockdowns only made matters worse. That the Mekong Review survived for as long as it did is a triumph. The Wonders of Elvis Up for Auction Few musicians left a legacy like Elvis. America's king of rock and roll sold some 500 million records in his lifetime, with fan clubs as far off as South Africa and the Philippines. On Saturday, his admirers will get a chance to take part of his legacy home when close to 200 of the king's jewelry pieces, including cufflinks, rings, and chains, will be auctioned off.
The collection, given by Elvis to his manager, Tom Parker, has been long considered lost. This will be the first chance for Elvis aficionados to see and bid on the assembled trinkets. Decades after his death, Elvis continues to rake in millions. The Presley estate is valued at $1 billion. A recent biopic directed by Baz Luhrmann brought in over $270 million at the box office. A single ring in this collection comes with a minimum bid of $130,000. The crooner once sang, Your kiss to me is worth a fortune. For deep-pocketed fans, so is his bling. Weekend Profile Michael Heiser, the artist behind City Richard Nixon was still America's president when Michael Heiser, one of the country's foremost land artists, began his mysterious sculpture project in 1972 in the High Nevada Desert north of Las Vegas. Few people were allowed to see the work in progress. Many thought it would never get done. As the years passed, it took on a mythical quality in the art world. Naysayers notwithstanding, half a century on, Mr. Heiser's city is complete. On September 2nd, it will be open to the public, even if, to maintain its atmosphere of splendid isolation, at first only six people a day will be allowed to visit. As an artist, Mr. Heiser is almost completely self-taught. Fascinated by drawing from an early age, as a teenager in the late 1950s, he helped his father, a famous anthropological archaeologist who was excavating an ancient Olmec site on the Yucatan Peninsula. Then he spent a year in Paris, mostly in its museums. Quote, I saw it all firsthand, he says. You can't go to school and learn about art by looking at a bunch of slides projected on a wall. The artist started work on City with a huge piece at one end called Section 1, a rectangular slope surrounded by concrete struts. Quote, I worked entirely intuitively, he says, with no ongoing thought or consecutive way of planning. The finished work is more than a mile and a half long and half a mile wide, 2.4 kilometers by 800 meters, making it one of the biggest contemporary sculptures ever made. Walking through it feels much like being in a garden, albeit one with no flowers, as in a city. There are mounds and walkways as well as discrete spaces that could be neighborhoods. It is both intimate and epic, forbidding and yet inviting, a work that is utterly itself. At 77, Mr. Heiser has made his last visit to the site. He lives far away, at sea level, for the sake of his damaged lungs. But his stubbornness is undimmed. He refuses to explain the significance of the work. Quote, It's the visitor who does the interpretation, he says. I don't give a damn. The winners of this week's quiz Thank you to everyone who took part in this week's quiz. The winners chosen at random from each continent were Asia, Gyu Youngju, Wonju, South Korea. North America, Michael Slater, Naperville, United States. Central and South America, Martin Whittle, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Europe, Glenn W. Most, Florence, Italy. Africa, Paul Lee, Pretoria, South Africa. Oceania, Jennifer Bladden Clark, Melbourne, Australia. They all submitted the correct answers of Elder, Big Blue, Jack Straw, Black Beauty, Goose. The theme is berries, elderberry, blueberry, strawberry, blackberry, and gooseberry. And visit the Espresso app for our new weekend crossword, designed for experienced cruciverbalists and newcomers alike.
Finally, here's the quote of the day from Robertson Davies, who was born August 28, 1913. If you don't hurry up and let life know what you want, life will damn soon show you what you'll get. That's the World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening.